Uh, but that's not what happens. And Owen Strand, in his book, Reenchanting Humanity, uh, he says that we are a justice-haunted people. He, he calls us a, a justice-haunted culture. And, and what he means by this is that uh, modern humanity feels this powerful need to make wrong things right, even while having no idea uh, where that need comes from or what right even is. Uh, we still feel it in our bones. We want to make wrong things right. You know, as those created in the image of God, the longing for, the expectation of justice, of wrong things made right is deeply ingrained in us. You know, we, we see this very clearly in our children. Uh, as parents, how often are we called on each day to hear the evidence uh, to dispense justice to injured and aggrieved siblings? Um, that's, that's kind of a daily, multiple times occurrence, right? Uh, we, we feel this longing for justice in ourselves. Uh, when we're stuck in traffic on the interstate, um, you know, stop and go, and then people start driving down the side of the road, and we immediately wish for a police officer to pull out behind them. Uh, we find ourselves frustrated at this when the lack of instant justice happens, and they just drive on down and get off, and we sit there for 30 more minutes, right? Uh, we see this in our love for stories that celebrate the triumph of justice, or even the stories that celebrate revenge, uh, you know, famous stories like The Count of Monte Cristo, The Iliad, uh, Hamlet, even more recent stories like The Princess Bride, right? As Inigo Montoya seeks to avenge the murder of his father by the six-fingered man. Um, you know, from ancient stories like The Iliad uh, to recent movies, uh, we love stories where wrongs are made right. We love stories that celebrate justice. And so this idea of justice is it's a powerful idea in our culture. You know, the desire to fix the wrong things in this world is a powerful desire in us, and it's a powerful, powerful desire in our culture. And, and Scott Allen, in his book, uh, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, he defines justice for us, and he says that justice is alignment to a standard of goodness. He says that justice is an alignment to a standard of goodness. And he points us to God's law as the only standard that is always just. And then he goes on to say, and I'm going to give this quote for us, um, he goes on to say uh, that over the last 200 years, the West has severed the idea of justice from God and his law, leading to the moral chaos we see today. Instead of relying on a sure and unchanging standard for justice, we are constantly changing standards. And so what he means in this quote is that while our desire and our thirst for justice is as strong as it's ever been, uh, because we've detached the word justice from God's standards, we're now even less likely to find justice or to create justice. And so in our passage today, Paul, Paul is forced to appeal to Caesar uh, when it becomes obvious that he will not receive justice from this new governor, Festus. Paul, Paul rightly longs for, Paul rightly expects justice, uh, but he once again does not find it. And so since, like Paul, uh, we know what it is to long for, uh, to desire justice while living in a world that is um, all too often unjust, uh, we need to pay close attention to the truths we find in this passage today. So this morning, uh, we're going to walk through this passage together, and then we'll spend just a few minutes looking at three ways uh, that we as Christians should respond to the injustice in this world. And the first thing that we see in this passage is Festus, the new governor over this region, uh, visiting Jerusalem. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 again for us. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul 
And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And so in these verses, we meet Festus. He's the new governor of the region. Uh, The previous governor was the corrupt and the power-hungry, power-loving Felix. And all accounts suggest that this Festus was known as as both wise and honorable. And we're told that three days after Festus arrives at his new post, uh, he travels to meet with the leaders of Jerusalem. And he does this uh, because one major responsibility of his job as governor was to maintain peace and order in Jerusalem And that explains why he goes over there so quickly, uh, why he travels to meet uh, with the leaders of Jerusalem. And when when he meets with them, at the top of their list of concerns that they want to bring up with their new governor is that Paul be tried and convicted and condemned to death. And and they know that Festus will desire to begin their relationship on on a pleasant note, and so they ask a favor of him. Uh, They ask him to go ahead and condemn Paul to death. And it's it's almost like a classroom of students trying to pull one over on the substitute teacher, right? Um, he's, he's new. Uh, he wants people to like him. Uh, they know that Festus is new. They know that he wants to have a good relationship with them. And so they ask him to summon Paul to Jerusalem, uh, renewing their previous plan to ambush him and to kill him. And it's amazing to realize, it's amazing to realize that Paul was such a threat to the leaders of Jerusalem that even after he'd been in jail for two years, um, they desperately wanted him eliminated. This was at the top of their list of things they wanted. You know, when you have a new governor come in, you think about asking him favors. Uh, it's amazing that the top of that list, the favor they wanted most, was that Paul be condemned and killed. And however, um, even though they bring this request to, the, to Festus, he responds to, the, to this request by agreeing to a trial, uh, but agreeing to a trial back at his home in Caesarea, where Paul is already in prison, and where Festus is going to be going in a few days. And so Festus responds to the request uh, that he summoned Paul to Jerusalem by inviting the Jew- Jewish leadership to return with him to Caesarea. And in this way, he somewhat unwittingly saves Paul's life. And in verses 6 through 8, uh, we hear a summary of Paul's trial before Festus. I'm going to read those verses for us. This is verses 6 through 8. After he stayed among them not more than 8 or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And so, so Festus spends a little time, a little, a little over a week in Jerusalem, and then he and Paul's accusers return to Caesarea. And we're told that the very next day, uh, Festus took his seat as the judge and Paul was brought in. And and Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that those who had traveled down from Jerusalem, uh, they surrounded Paul um, and they brought many and serious charges against Paul, but they couldn't prove any of them. You know, these, these men spent the last two years waiting for their chance to deal with Paul. And now they show up to, uh, they show up to court and they can't prove any of the charges they're making against him. And this kind of gives you an idea of why they really wanted to ambush him on the way to Jerusalem, right? They knew they couldn't win in court, um, and so they were trying to find another way to deal with Paul. Um, They hate Paul. Um, They want him dead, uh, but he is innocent of any charge that could result in um, in his condemnation to death. And so they stand before Festus in Caesarea. Uh, They make charge after charge against Paul that they can't prove. 
And Luke then gives us a summary of Paul's defense. You know, we've heard Paul's defense over the last several chapters, and so this time Luke summarizes it for us. Uh, Paul tells us, uh, he tells the court that he has not broken any Jewish laws, he's not broken any temple laws, and he's not broken any of Rome's laws. You know, he didn't bring Gentiles into the temple. Uh, He isn't encouraging rebellions against Rome by acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. And so Paul once again proclaims and proves his innocence, uh, but Festus does not respond with justice. In verses 9 through 12, Festus tries to find a way to gain favor with the Jews at Paul's expense. And this forces Paul to appeal to Caesar. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12 for us. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so what we see here is that Festus' response to Paul's innocence is not to free Paul. His response is still to try and convince Paul to agree to another trial in Jerusalem. And Luke tells us his motivation. Uh, Festus is still trying to find a way to use Paul to gain favor with the Jews. And so here we have an example of justice being undermined by political calculations. And Paul wisely recognizes uh, that he's not going to receive justice in Jerusalem. Uh, This is Paul's third trial before a Roman ruler. And each time he's proven his innocence, each time the ruler has said, Paul's innocent. And now Festus is suggesting that Paul return to Jerusalem for another trial. And so Paul recognizes that he's not going to find justice. Festus is motivated not by a desire to um, produce a just outcome in this trial, but by his desire to win favor. And so Paul responds by calling out Festus. Uh, He calls out Festus for knowing that Paul is innocent of breaking any Jewish laws and for speaking uh, and for seeking to give him um, into their hands. And so recognizing, recognizing that Paul would not find justice in the courts of Festus, Paul Uh, He exercises his rights as a Roman citizen, and he appeals to Caesar. Uh, Paul counters this plot by Festus by appealing to a higher court. And this action uh, action would render the Jews and it would render Festus unable to pronounce a verdict on Paul. Uh, So by appealing to Caesar, basically he's preventing the Jews, he's preventing Festus from being able to rule in his case. And so the injustice that Paul continues to experience, it, it forces him to appeal to this higher court, and in the end... Uh, Festus agrees to send Paul's case to Caesar. And then in verses 13 through 22, we get to hear this conversation between Festus and Agrippa. Uh, And as we do, we realize the extent of the injustice against Paul. So I'm going to read 13 through 22 again for us. Um, It says this, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. 
When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. And so in these verses, Luke describes for us the interactions between Festus and a ruler of a neighboring region named Agrippa. And that name Agrippa is going to be familiar to us. His great-grandfather was Herod that we read about in the story of Jesus' birth. His father was the Herod Agrippa we read of in Acts chapter 12. Um, And so we've met this family before. And here we meet Herod Agrippa II and his sister Bernice, uh, who are paying a kind of somewhat ceremonial visit to Festus to celebrate that he's he's now the governor of this area. And while they're there, Festus asks Agrippa for for advice regarding Paul's case. And he does this because of um, the fact that Agrippa is from Jewish descent. Uh, It's reported that uh, Agrippa was knowledgeable regarding Jewish law, that he was very, very knowledgeable of the Hebrew scriptures. And so Festus presents Paul's case as a problem that Felix left for him. And he's very careful to present uh, the case in a way that really tries to make himself look much more fair in his dealings with Paul than he's actually been. Uh, He explains how the Jews came asking not for a trial, but just for a guilty verdict. Um, He explains why he needs help. He says he doesn't understand Jewish law, that he can't send Paul to Caesar uh, without some explanation of why Paul hasn't already been released. Uh, Festus, Festus needs help figuring out how to explain to Caesar why he's sending an innocent man to the court to be judged. And and Agrippa willingly agrees to hear Paul uh, during his visit. And Festus, uh, somewhat anxious for help, he lines up the hearing for the next day. And in verses 23 through 27, Festus introduces Paul and Paul's case to the assembly. So I'm going to read 23 through 27 for us. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish or people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. As as Luke recounts the scene for us, it almost feels like Paul is being presented to these kind of gathered rulers, these leaders of the military and these leaders from the city. Uh, Paul is being presented almost as a novelty for their entertainment purposes. Uh, Paul is kind of there to, to, you know, they're going to hear this interesting case. And so Festus, as he announces Paul, he kind of exaggerates, claiming that the whole Jewish people were crying out for Paul's death. Um, then he admits that Paul has done nothing deserving of death and, and acts as if he would have released Paul if Paul hadn't appealed to the emperor. And then Festus concludes his speech by saying that uh, he needs help. He needs help knowing what to write when he sends Paul to the emperor since it's unreasonable to send an innocent man to a higher court. And so as Festus explains this case to the gathered leaders, he seeks to justify his own actions as much as he seeks to explain the case. 
Uh, one commentator highlights the irony that we see in this chapter, uh, that innocent Paul continues to be on trial before um, men and before those who are guilty of significant moral failings. And that is the case throughout uh, these past few chapters in Acts uh, that we've already seen. Now, in spite of Paul's proven innocence, he continues to suffer injustice at the hands of these Roman courts. And in our passage this morning, you know, Paul is forced to appeal to a higher court. He's forced to appeal to Caesar uh, when it becomes clear that he's still not going to receive justice, even though he has a new governor. Uh, Paul, Paul rightly longs for and expects justice from Festus. Uh, but in our passage this morning that we just read, uh, we saw that once again the justice that, he has, that his innocence deserves was denied. And in verse 19, as Festus explains this issue to Agrippa, Festus rightly states that the reason that the Jews hated Paul, uh, the reason that they wanted him dead, was not any of their false charges uh, that they brought against Paul. It was because of a certain Jesus who was dead that Paul asserted was alive. Uh, Festus rightly figures out this is the actual issue. You know, the reason that Paul wouldn't receive justice was the persistent persecution of those who had also unjustly put to death Jesus. And so Paul longs for and he expects justice because he's innocent. And yet he does not find justice. And as we read these courtroom accounts in the book of Acts, uh, Paul was repeatedly tried. He's repeatedly found innocent and then left in prison. And as we read this, we're bothered by it. Our, you know, our God is a God of justice. Um, and those, as those he's created in his image, uh, we long to see justice done as well. And when justice is not done, we, we long to see wrongs made right. Uh, we, and so we live in a world where, where we experience injustice uh, both because of the presence of sin in this world, and at times uh, we will experience injustice like Paul did because we're Christians. And so this morning, uh, before we go, I want to spend just a few minutes uh, looking at three ways, uh, three ways that we as Christians should respond uh, to the reality of injustice in this world. And the first way, uh, the first way that we should respond to the reality of injustice in this world is to grieve the injustice of the world. Uh, we grieve the injustice of the world. You know, the Bible is full of passages and it's full of verses uh, that tell us that our God loves justice, that he loves righteousness, and that he will punish the unjust in the end. And I'm going to give you two, just two of those. Uh, Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Uh, Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So we see in those two verses examples of a passage that tell us that God loves justice. Another example that tells us that God punishes those who withhold justice. You know, when we encounter injustice in our own lives, when we see it in the world around us, it's, it's right for us to be sad. It's right for us to be sad about it. We should grieve. You know, this is not how the world should be. Injustice is a product of sin in the hearts of human beings who determine to live according to their own laws rather than by the laws of God. Uh, when we encounter injustice in our own lives, when we see it in the world around us, it's right for us to be upset about it. Um, it's right that we should grieve. And so the first way that we should respond to the reality of injustice um, in this world is to grieve. Uh, we grieve the injustice of the world. The second way that we should respond to the reality of injustice in this world is to prepare to face the injustice of this world. So the second way we respond is to prepare to face the injustice of this world. When we encounter injustice uh, in our own lives, when we see it in the world around us, we should grieve. 
Uh, we should grieve the wrong of injustice, but we should not be taken by surprise. Often we are. Uh, but the Bible is full of examples of those who have suffered injustice. Um, some, like Joseph, suffered injustice simply because we live in a world affected by sin. And many choose to live by their own standards rather than by the standard of God's law. Uh, some, like Asaph in Psalm 73, they, uh, he wrestles with his faith as he considers the fact um, that there is injustice in this world. The, the righteous are punished. The wicked seem to be succeeding and flourishing. How could that be? Uh, others like Stephen and like Paul in the New Testament, they suffer injustice specifically because they're following Christ. And in the book of Acts, we read of some of the first Christians who suffered injustice because of their faith in Christ. But unfortunately, uh, they were not the last to suffer for their faith in Christ. The history of the church and the story of the church around the world, even right now, is full of those who are suffering injustice and even death for their faith in Jesus Christ, for their faith in Jesus as Lord, for their adherence to God's word. And so one of the best ways to prepare to face injustice, um, especially when we're talking about facing injustice for our own faith in Christ, uh, for that adherence to his word, is to become familiar with these stories, is to learn from these stories of those who have suffered before us, uh, to hear and to learn from the accounts of those who remain faithful um, when we look at the Bible, uh, when we look at church history, when we even hear of these stories going on in the world around us right now, um, as we prepare uh, to face injustice, uh, we consider the stories of those who've gone before us, who've already faced injustice for the sake of Christ, um, as we learn from them. And so the second way that we should respond to the reality of injustice in this world is to prepare to face that injustice. Um, the third way that we should respond to the reality of injustice in this world is to appeal the injustice in this world to a higher court. So the third way we respond is to appeal the injustice of this world to a higher court. You know, the same way that the Bible is full of stories of the righteous suffering injustice in this world, uh, the Bible is also full of the words of those sufferers appealing their case to their just and righteous God. You know, like Paul appealing his case to Caesar when, when we meet injustice, when we meet injustice, uh, we, we appeal our case to the one whose throne is founded on righteousness. Uh, we appeal our case to the one whose throne is founded on justice. You know, one of, the, one of the cries of the Old Testament is, How long, O Lord? It's just one of those gripping things you read throughout the Old Testament. They cry out, How long, O Lord? You know, so many of the psalmists, so many of the prophets ask this question of their God. You know, God's people know their God's character. And when they suffer unjustly, they want to know how long. How long will it be before he comes? and makes these wrong things right. But this isn't just a cry in the Old Testament. Uh, in Revelation 6, verses 10 and 11, we hear this cry of how long, and it rises up from those who have suffered and been killed because of the faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they long for justice, and they are told uh, to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their, and their brothers should be complete. Uh, this cry has gone up from the church. Uh, from the beginning, how long, O oh Lord, as we take uh, the injustice that we're suffering, we appeal it to a higher court, we bring it to our God, who we know is just. Uh, when we come face to face with the injustice of this world, we, we grieve the presence of injustice in God's world. We, we prepare to face injustice by learning from the example of those who go before us. And we learn to appeal to our God for the justice we're currently denied, um, just as Jesus did before us. I'm going to read uh, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. Um, it says this, For to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus met with the greatest injustice that has ever occurred. And he responded not by denying his God, not by denying the goodness of his God, the care of his God. He didn't respond by attacking his attackers. He responded by continuing to entrust himself to him who judges justly, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Um, So let us, by God's uh, continuous grace, let us follow our Savior and entrusting ourselves to the shepherd and overseer of our souls who who knows our cares, um, who knows our suffering, and who is faithful to keep us to the end. Let me pray for us.